This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your gumboots on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Luke Radford bringing you the program this week from Bendigo on Jar Jar land in central Victoria. And I've got a question for you. How many avocados do you eat each week? Because no matter what your answer, the response from the industry is probably that it's not enough because they're facing another year of oversupply. Nearly half of all the trees planted in Australia are yet to come into full production. So this isn't a one-off, what we've just seen. It's going to continue over the next few years. And we'll also visit a part of the country that La Nina has forgotten. We did get about 39 mil the other day and... It was very welcome and we've kind of taken a breath, but it's been very patchy at the same time. Like Even across our place, we not all of it has been wet at all. But first up today, it's been a week of big falls in livestock markets. Prices fell for lamb and sheep in the sale yards across Australia and there were also big falls in the price of cattle. But it also came for the wool market as well, where global pressures have driven the price down again as demand from China, our biggest buyer by far, continues to slide. Marty Moses from Moses & Son Woolbroking explained to reporter Warwick Long why that's the case. Look, we've seen a, a drop in the EMI, which is a broad indicator um, of 32 cents down to 12.24, which historically now we're going back into, you know, uh, October, November 16, 17 type levels in Australian terms. And uh, alarmingly in US dollar terms has dropped to 8.20, um, so off 14 cents. But that takes us right back to levels at 2010, I believe. Uh, and, and maybe, yeah, I've, I've just got to do the finer ones. 8.29 it got to in 2015. And we're right back into 2010 where it dropped below that 8.20 mark. So Look, I mean, you know, and the, the principal um, underpinning factors here is just the world economies uh, suffering under inflation, high interest rates, high energy rates. You know, there's just this long list of negatives, wars between Russia and Ukraine. The UK is in a mess. You know, the whole world's just suffering enormously. So uh, wool is now the- at its cheapest point in US dollar terms for over a decade in 12 years. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and that reflects, you know, if you think about, Pressures coming on the the household expenditure, discretionary spend. Um, you know, people aren't going to go out and spend money on luxury items, which wool is uh, essentially. And you know, the new suit, the the new uh, you know t-shirt for running, or you know, next to skinwear type garment might just have that last that little bit longer. And and I think that you know the world's taking a big deep breath on how they're going to approach the cost of living pressures. Uh, you know over the next year or two or three. I think it's just going to be a, a real uh, wait-and-see type situation. And, and of course, China are suffering under the President Xi's shutdowns of, of whole cities and industries, if you like. And China's uh, the biggest buyer by far of Australian yeah. wool. And so is that having a real impact, given we've seen protests and, and the situation in China really ramping up this week? Yeah, absolutely. Even though China is still active, that they're 
you know, in some sectors, they're, they're buying selectively to keep mills running. There's no trading going on. So the trading exporters are very quiet this week and, you know, operating largely for European and Indian orders, uh, orders outside of China because the Chinese are just so quiet. There's uh, no confidence there at the moment. And as we've seen riots in the streets of, you know, the university students uh, reacting to the shutdowns and, and the impact that's having on that country. So You're a wool broker. Uh, wool isn't the, the most perishable product. So are growers starting to hold on to their bales given the market's falling so quickly? Look, um, there's been a couple of realms that we haven't seen for a while, which is in the in the height of spring, we've had a lot of the country up here in New South Wales flood affected. And so receivables have been below par for a month or two now as people either had shorn and couldn't move the wool off farm or have been landlocked or waterlocked more so with the floods to the north of us here where, you know, where we are in New South Wales. So you know, not you don't have to go too far out of Tamora here, which is the centre of New South Wales, to find areas that are still, you know, where there's water lying everywhere and there's, you know, people can't get sheep to shearing sheds. There's helicopters out west, you know, moving sheep out of flood zones um, in, in, in a respect to the rivers uh, swelling and, and coming down. So there's been a whole, you know, crisis management, uh, uh, you know, situation going on and that has slowed down receipts in the last, 10 to 12, 14 days, there's been no rain and things are starting to, you know, open up a bit and and receivables are really cranking now, which is a month or two behind our normal peaks in this region. And I suspect that's been right across the the eastern seaboard. So we're going to get volumes into a, a market where it really probably can't handle it and that that's more alarming now than uh, i think ever because if china doesn't come back in who are our volume buyers these 35 33,000 bale offerings go to 45 or 50 then the market's in serious you know risk of, of falling even further marty moses from moses and son wool broking speaking there about the downturn in the wool market this week with warwick long well, from one case of oversupply to another now, after mass dumping of fruit in 2022, avocado growers are bracing for another year of oversupply off the back of increased production and another big flowering. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyus told Jennifer Nichols the issue is there are 4 million trees in the ground compared to 1.5 million just 10 years ago. It has been a very tough year uh, and it's been coming for a while because we've been monitoring the tree plantings over the last few years and, uh, you know, we know that nearly half of all the trees planted in Australia are yet to come into full production. So this isn't a one-off, what we've just seen. It's going to continue over the next few years as we continue to increase our production up to about 170,000 tonnes, up from about 80,000 tonnes in 2021. So we're going through a massive growth phase and and, um, obviously the industry is going through some fairly serious growing pains. So, yeah, very tough year last year, but uh, we're doing everything we can to build demand in the domestic market, but but also developing new export markets uh, because, you know, simply the the domestic market is going to struggle to consume all the volume that's coming in the next few years. Realistically, how competitive are we going to be, though, given the distances involved in export and the fact that so many other countries produce lots of avocados? Most of our competitors are in South America, so we are closer to our export markets, which are predominantly Asia. That's uh, Southeast Asia is where most of uh, our avocados go, and that's where our focus is. 
Um, we're also looking at uh, expanding our footprint into Japan and and uh, hoping to get access to to India before too long, which is uh, which is an emerging market. And, uh, and you know, one day we hope to get access to to China. So we're in a we're in a good position geographically for those growing markets. How many tons of avocados were produced in Australia last year, and how does that compare to the previous year? Uh, it was about 122,000 tonnes was produced in 2022, and it was just under 80,000 tonnes in in 2021. So about a you know about a 50 50 odd percent increase uh, in 12 months. So that's that's why it's been such a struggle to suddenly move such a large increase in volume into fairly limited markets. You know we've really only got. Uh, probably three three major export markets and the domestic market. So fairly limited. Our biggest issue at the moment is getting getting access to to new markets, and and what I mean by that is technical market access. So so a lot of the countries we want access to have got quarantine protocols that need to be negotiated by by by, by the relative governments to uh, to put processes in place to manage um, pests of concern. So that's quite a, a lengthy process and, and that's an area that we're really focusing on at the moment uh, to try and get access to, to larger markets. Wow, the pressure's on you, isn't it, John Tyus? Because production is expected to continue to increase to about 170,000 tonnes by 2026. Yeah, exactly. The pressure is definitely on the industry. <clears throat> but like I say, I think there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. The key is being globally competitive. So, you know, growers need to do everything they can to get optimum yields because that drives profitability and quality. Quality is actually key. We we, uh, we just got back from a, a trip where we took a number of growers and exporters, a group of about 20, to um, Asia Fruit Logistica in Bangkok and then on to Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. The message that we got was really clear. We have to be the best. You know, we have to be, produce the best quality product. We need to have the best service. And with those things, I think, you know, if we're a reliable supplier of a really good quality product, um, Australia is seen as a producer of, of good quality produce. There are definitely good markets there. Uh, we've just got to really work for it. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyre speaking there to Jennifer Nichols about the oversupply issues facing the avocado industry. As you heard a little bit earlier in that story, there are now 4 million avocado trees in the ground in Australia compared to just 1.5 million 10 years ago. So it means there's going to be a pretty significant glut again this year. And as he was just saying there... There's not really much in the way of export markets or places we can send that fruit at the moment, so we have to consume it here in Australia. So, good news, more avocado on toast and more guacamole. You're listening to Countrywide. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Well, Coles is expanding its carbon-neutral beef range with customers in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania now able to purchase the product. David Clawton spoke to Coles and one of their suppliers, Daniel Maffey, a cattle producer from Holbrook in New South Wales. He asked him, what's changed on the farm to actually make his beef carbon-neutral in the first place? We've planted a lot of trees, uh, so these, these have the dual advantage of offsetting emissions as well as providing shade for the herd and preventing erosion. Uh, we've implemented best practice soil and pasture management to increase the amount of carbon we're storing in the soil. So soil testing paddocks, applying the appropriate uh, nutrients that are required for those paddocks. Uh, pasture management is targeted rotational grazing 
uh, leaving the correct residual ground cover, uh, putting more area into perennial pastures, so there's more green feed, more time of the year, going going an extra effort to get the best cattle genetics available to increase herd productivity. Uh, we've installed multiple solar panels for farm electricity use, including pumping water to our cattle. How many panels uh, have you got now? We've got about 50 kilowatts of panels. So how has Coles been helping you out in that regard? I mean, obviously they're paying you for your beef. Do they give you a premium or do they support you in other ways? That's right. Uh, Coles is, is paying a premium and they are um, doing an excellent job of providing us with the resources uh, to people to talk to, to able to minimise our carbon emissions. Right. And when you say you've been doing rotational grazing, so you're obviously resting quite a bit of the land when you're doing that, and you're, you're putting nutrients on to promote the growth, so the more that your pasture grows, the more carbon the grass can store in the soil, yeah? So That's right. So what are you seeing in terms of your carbon levels? Uh, they have been increasing steadily uh, over the years, but it is a very, it's a long-term gain, game uh, with the soil carbon. Um, I think some more short-term things where we're seeing immediate results from uh, herd productivity. So we're putting a very strong emphasis on turning our cattle off at a younger age uh, and higher weights when possible. Um, so how does that help in terms of your carbon footprint? So the carbon footprint is measured on the basis of kilograms of live weight sold. So if each, as a breeding producer, uh, we have to run a cow, and if we that cow isn't getting in calf, it's gone. Um, and for every cow we run, their progeny, we want to put on the maximum amount of, of weight gain as fast as possible uh, to justify having that cow and to reduce that cow's emissions and the offspring's emission per kilogram of light weight gained. So I suppose in some respects, the faster they grow, the quicker they get to an age that they can be, they can they can be processed, and that has less, less impact on the environment. Is that fair to say? Yes, definitely. And what about your carbon credits? Because that's the thing that you could sell. Have you sold those to Coles? No, we're still in the industry, uh, early stages of that process. We're investigating all our options. Um, so no, not at this stage. Because a lot, uh, of, lot Coles, of farmers are getting advice not to sell because obviously that might shut you out of other markets, particularly in the EU. Yeah, so we, we are treading carefully in that regard. We are uh, engaging with yeah, private consultants to make sure that we make the right decisions. Um, but Coles is definitely excited to be buying carbon credits from us directly, uh, but we just want to make sure that we're making the right decision. Daniel Maffey, a cattle producer from Holbrook in New South Wales, chatting there with David Clawton about what processes he had to undertake to make his beef carbon neutral to be then sold to Coles. Well, coming up next on the program, we're going to be talking about the current state of distance education here in Australia. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Well, Thursday was Geographically Isolated Distance Education Day, a celebration and a reminder of all the families across remote parts of Australia that face the challenge of having home and the classroom be in the same place. Now, a lot's changed since the early days of the School of the Air, and the internet has unlocked a lot of potential, but there's no doubt it's still a very tricky world. Gillian Fennell is a pastoralist near Marla in far north South Australia, and she has two kids in school at the moment and is also passionate about equality for families in distance education. And she joins us on the line now. Gillian, welcome to Countrywide. 
Hi, Luke. How are you going? I mean, just tell me about the experience of being involved in distance education, you know, right now in 2022. It has come a long way since the uh, old days of, of paper correspondence. Um, and now, you know, with the internet and, and access to, to better connectivity, um, the kids get the opportunity. They sit their teacher and their classmates at least twice a day. And I'm talking about through the, um, the NT system where my kids go because even though I'm in South Australia, I am still only 450 kilometres from Alice Springs and over 800 kilometres from Port Augusta. So it's a lot more convenient for us to do school the air through, through the NT. But with that, that, that access and regularity of contact with the teachers comes a great responsibility of ensuring that you are available as the home tutor and the kids are available to participate in those lessons because that's when the majority of the learning happens. Now, of course, in some places there are governesses or, or um, people who are able to help out with those roles. But for a lot of families, it is people like yourself, mothers and fathers, who have to jump in and lend a hand. But in either case, it creates kind of a, a strange dynamic, as it will, at home. I mean, how do you go about managing that? Yeah, it, it does create um, a very interesting dynamic in the home um, because it, it's, a lot, it's a learning curve for the kids to, to understand that, you know, your home tutor... When you're in the classroom, we're in the schoolroom, and, and you're also mum, and, and it can lead to a lot of interesting conversations and, and dynamics, especially around when kids refuse to do what they're going to do, and um, you know some arguments and a lot of pressure and stress. As a parent, you want what's best for your kids, and a lot of us came into this with no formal training in being a teacher and how to manage these sorts of issues. And suddenly you're confronted with a very willful four-year-old who will not read that book and will not complete that work. And, and you, don't, you don't have the expertise on, on how to handle it in an educational setting. At home is one thing, but when you're trying to, to educate your children and, and hopefully give them the tools that they need to succeed in the classroom, it's a completely different thing to try to deal with. And it, it, it can take a very devastating toll on some families. Now, of course, you mentioned there that uh, th- there are challenges and obviously you're not really coming in with kind of the, the education background to, to handle them. But another great challenge I think seems to really go unseen, I guess, for for people who are not in this environment is that you're not just trying to balance your education and your life. You're trying to balance education and life and then work on the farm anyway, which is your day-to-day job. It is, and it is. It's And it's like... As a lot of people in my situation would know, um, getting staff to come and live and work on a station in remote areas is almost impossible. Um, so you're left to, to pick up the slack when you can't find that staff. And because there's this expectation, you know, from your partner that you might be, you're around the house, so or you get the phone call or the call on the radio, or just go and pick this thing up or just duck down and do that. And it disrupts everything, just disrupts your whole day. And, and you know, kids are resilient and kids are flexible, but without the support that we, we are looking for, that we need, um, it's the strain on, on everything is, is massive. Like I've spoken to ladies who have finished their school at the end, their distance ed career, and, and they've had to basically take a couple of years off from anything because it's just so manic and hectic. Because it's not just it's not just what you're doing at work. It's not because nothing else lets off. You still have your home duties to complete. You've got your work to do. You've got to educate the children. And along with that comes anything that you have when you participate in a normal school community, you've got your volunteering that you need to do, fundraising, all those sorts of things. The load just continues to grow and and trying to manage it is a real issue. 
And even with that load, I mean, you mentioned that by the time your youngest child goes off to boarding school, you will have done 16 years of this almost? Yeah, 16 years in the, in the classroom. That's because uh, I, I spaced my children out. And, and, and um, in hindsight, perhaps I shouldn't have done that. But it all comes down to the fact that it's really hard to teach school to one child when you're nursing a baby. It, and, you know, you want to try to manage your time and manage your family. Like, it, it's such a massive issue. Like, feminism should be all over this, really, because it, it all comes down to, like, and I'm not going to say that men don't help and participate because they do. But let's be honest, it's women who carry the burden, the bulk of the burden in this instance. It, it interferes in your reproduction and, and your family life and everything. It's, it's insane. And one of the things you've also been really big on is that th- there is there is a big divide in, in Australia between those that are able to send their kids to regular school and then those who are involved in distance education and programs like School of the Air, not just from the side you were saying where there's that sort of lack of training and also the impact on life, but the financial side of things as well. It, uh, it, it it takes the female or the mother or whatever you want to describe them, or if you're engaging the governess, you have to find the money to pay that person a reasonable wage because you can't shortcut on paying people who are teaching their, your kids. That's mad. So it's taken me out of the workforce for 16 years, and, and it'll, it'll be, it will have cost me, and just at minimum wage hours, it will have cost me over $400,000 to participate in that, in just in teaching my kids. And... You know, there'll be a lot of people out there who say, oh, well, you know, that's your choice and you chose to live that lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. Like, but that's, a, that's, that's not an argument. There's plenty of instances where people, through no fault of their own, have to provide services to a family member or, or, or a loved one and there is support available for them. Like, and I know this is already being done and, and people in the, in the community fought a really hard fight to get to a carer's allowance because we are taking the burden of the government and, and we should be recognised for that. Uh, of course, a few years ago, Scott Morrison, when he was the Prime Minister, said that distance education wouldn't be left behind. I mean, since those comments were made, has anything changed? No, talk is cheap. Oh, it, it, it's amazing how undervalued these women are, and it is primarily women. And, and it's, I think that's reflective of society as a whole, that we don't value women's work. And, and, you know, I think we should be better than that. And before I let you go, I mean, you mentioned back at the very start of this conversation that the, the world of school of the air and distance education has changed somewhat with the internet letting the kids kind of jump into, a, a, I guess, a digital classroom almost with, with their peers. I mean, has that social experience, do you think that's a really positive change for the kids that they get to be able to, to see their colleagues? Oh, it certainly is. And, and, you know, being able to put a face to a name and being able to read people's facial expressions, like, it, it's just helping the kids develop into being much better communicators and, and becoming much better little people. Um, and and we can't ever take away from the fact that things are much, much better than they used to be, but that doesn't give us the excuse to say, then we don't deserve any better because we will always deserve better. And that's not just for us rural and remote families, it's for all families across Australia. We can't just say, oh, it's good enough. We have to keep striving to make sure that our kids get the best support that they need and families get the support that they need to, to make it the best that it can possibly be. Well, Julian, I think we'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks very much for your time. Julian Fennell there, a pastoralist near Marla in far north South Australia. She's got a couple of kids in distance education at the moment, and she's passionate about equality for those that are living in that world. And as she said there, by the time she's wrapped up, she will have spent 16 years in the classroom. How about that? You're listening to Countrywide. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide. 
The Politics of Food and Farming. Well, there's no doubt it's been an incredibly wet year across most of Australia. And whilst a third La Nina season has brought widespread rain to parts across areas of the southeast through New South Wales and Victoria and even parts of South Australia, in the north, some places have continued to miss out. Our reporter Lucy Cooper takes you with this report to the northwest of Queensland. Travelling along the Flinders Highway between Townsville and Mount Isa, you notice the road is very straight, flat, and long. But also, the landscape changes suddenly, from drought-ridden paddocks to flourishing pastures. It all comes down to the hit-and-miss nature of rainfall in the northwest, which senior meteorologist with the Bureau of Meteorology, Steve Hadley, says is just part and parcel of the region. A lot of northern Australia has quite a a variable rainfall pattern through the years. So um, you get, you know, some wetter years and some drier years and in, you know, across the um, the tropical north of Australia, you know, it's, it is often a patchwork of of rainfall where you get these uh, smaller rainfall cells um, which happen in some areas and miss other areas. And then you'll get the um, odd, bigger, larger system that will sweep through and produce uh, a heavier sort of look to the rainfall um, through a broader swath of the north, uh, but maybe missing entirely other places. So that's the kind of um, nature of the rainfall that we deal with in northern Australia most years. The shires of Flinders and Cloncurry are not drought declared, whilst nestled in between them, the McKinley and Richmond shires are. 40.9% of Queensland remains drought declared, and graziers in the northwest of the state are still waiting on rain. Thea Harrington of Werriner Station, north of Julia Creek, says in the 10 years she has lived in the northwest, she has yet to see a normal season. Everybody talks about a normal year, um, and in the 10 years that I've been here, no one's described it as normal. Um, we've had everything from super dry years like 2013, and then the our total opposite extreme in 2019, um, and... I don't know what normal is in the 10 years that I've been in the northwest. Ruth Chaplin lives 30 kilometres outside of Cloncurry on Weinberg Station, a family-owned and operated cattle property. She says until this past week, it was shaping up to be a very dry 2022. Up until 48 hours ago, we had really had anything. I mean, we were really starting to look down um, the barrel of a very dry 2022, and we were starting to have a little bit of a sick feeling I suppose. Um, We did get about 39 mil the other day and it was very welcome and we've kind of taken a breath but it's been very patchy at the same time like even across our place we not all of it has been wet at all. Thea says it's just part of living in the region. We have two gauges um, one here one at our house and one 5k down the road at the bottom of our driveway and they can have two vastly different falls. Um, We are in a little pocket um, between the Flinders Highway and the Wills Developmental Road um, that I would describe that has missed out in the last couple of years. Um, there are not a lot of cattle running in those paddocks at the moment. Um, it's probably too early to comment on what this season's going to be like, um, but I think it's going to take some very consistent moisture to rebuild the soil moisture and bring back the pasture. And Ruth Chaplin agrees. It's very hit and miss. Like Some people have had decent rain, but... A large majority haven't. 
and the rain that they've had has been storms. So, you know, it varies across places, across areas, across districts, yeah. Steve Hadley from the Bureau says it's not just the weather that impacts drought, but also the landscapes. There's a lot of things that influence uh, drought in the landscape and one of those things, you know, is the landscape and, uh, you know, the way it reacts and takes the rainfall. Um, and so the the weather factors involved are, you know, potentially the, the small scale nature of some of the, uh, the thunderstorm systems that come through um, North Queensland. And, uh, you know, they can affect one uh, part of the region, but not another. And in some you know, respect some of the smaller scale systems that you get, um, you know, they can affect, you know, um, you know, even smaller parts of the district um, rather than, you know, affecting a whole swath of the north of the state. Ruth Chaplin says she just wishes some of the rain would come her way. It'd be nice to take some of the, the wet off the people down south, but unfortunately we, we just can't do that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, I guess... We're kind of used to it. Like it's not one of those things that you you can plan for to some extent anyway. But it's it's quite stressful when you have no control. Ruth Chaplin, who lives on Weinberg Station outside Cloncurry, finishing that report by Lucy Cooper. That's all we've got time for on Countrywide. Catch you next week.